Hi everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I'm super excited today because we are recording the LB School and Library podcast in person. I know, nature is healing. And so is technology along with it. I have the very great joy of being at the Public Library Association Conference in my very beloved hometown of Portland, Oregon. And with me immediately next to me, uh, vaxxed, boosted, all healthy and fantastic, physically, we're going to get psychologically here in a little bit of a minute, and then you'll know why, is mistress of mystery <laughs> and thrillers and killers. And I don't know about horror, but I chillers. Really, chillers. I know. It's a lot of illers. I know. But they're really good. With me, right next to me, is April Henry. I am so excited that she is with us today. Now, April Henry has heretofore published as Johnny Carson used to say, with another house. <laughs> Her books include Shock Point, which was a finalist for the ALA Yalsa Teen Top 10. Um, it was a Tatious book. It's an ALA Quick Pick, New York Times Library Books for the Teenage. There's also Girl Stolen, which is on more state award lists than you can shake a stick at. And that is correct because it is reader's choice, phantasmagorically good, all her books. Another book is The Night She Disappeared, which was a Junior Library Guild selection, which means you should have it in your library, whether that's a public library or a school library. Another one is The Girl Who Was Supposed to Die and The Body in the Woods. Mm -hmm. We could go on and on because there are a lot of books and there is a lot of stories that are kind of disturbing and we're gonna get into that. Recently, I had the very great enjoyment of picking up physically in my hand. I read it as a PDF, but that is not the same. Two Truths and a Lie, which I'm holding up in front of the laptop as if you can see it because it smells mysterious and okay. it reads mysterious. <laughs> I really loved this book. This is a story about Nell, who would like to be an actor, but I suspect she lacks the confidence necessary. Mm -hmm. Now, she is then lured during a snowstorm and being trapped in a cabin somewhere. Yes, Shades of Yellow Jackets, but so much better. Into, and written before. And written before. Out. Written before it came out. Uh, into a game of two truths and a lie. And she gets, when she picks out the slip, there is a disturbing message on the back of that. I like to watch people die. I've lost count of the people I've killed. Ooh. And the third one is... I don't like mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be a separate conversation, particularly in the lovely state of Oregon that we're living in. Uh, welcome, April, to LBYR and to the podcast. It's great to be here. We've just had a really great signing, and one of the things that was really exciting to see on the convention floor is people just going, oh my God, April Henry has a new book. Yes, please sign me up, and that <laughs> is great. Uh, that must have been really fun for you. It was fun having a line. It was fun talking to strangers. It was weird having fancy shoes on and makeup all at the same time. All at the same time, yes. Um, I'm going to say that I love the cover of this book because I really respond to eyes mm -hmm. on the book and the way this is done with the fracturing. It looks a little bit like the blizzard, but also cracked glass, mm -hmm. cracked psyche, the motel. Uh, I just, there's a lot to like about it. When you are writing these books, especially Two, two Truths and a Lie, but writing these books, there is a similar vein of just disquiet and I don't want to say danger so much as 
or insecurity, although I think mm -hmm. there's an aspect of that, but unsecurity. What's the attraction for you in writing these stories and, and these young women who are involved in these plots? Well, I think for me, it all got its start um, back when I was still in college. I um, was living in these ramshackle old apartments at the base of Corbett, if you're, mm -hmm. since you're from Portland, and uh, I had heard noises outside and none of us bothered to put up curtains on our back windows because there was a retaining wall behind the apartments so that was only about a foot away. So there's no point spending money on curtains. You didn't mm -hmm. need to. And I heard um, rustling, and I was doing these chain fonda exercises because it was so long ago I was doing those. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought there were raccoons back there. And it wasn't until I was in the shower uh, that I heard someone forcing open my kitchen window and I turned off the water and you never feel more vulnerable than when you're naked in the shower and I was staring at a door that didn't close all the way because the apartment was so old the door had warped so I couldn't lock it and I the window behind me was too small to get out of and it was painted shut and I just remember this feeling of unreality and I managed to escape and I never saw the guy or spoke to him, but the police did uh, have me look to see if anything was missing and all my dish towels had been taken. And I thought it was funny because I was like joking around saying, why didn't he take my pancake turner or my salt? And the cop looked at me and said he was gonna tie you up with them, ma'am. So I very easily could have died in 1982 and I didn't, um, but I think that has always made it if I'm seeing a news story about a woman who's at an ATM and is kidnapped and thrown in the trunk of her own car, I'll think, well, what would I do? Would I think of anything clever to mm -hmm. get out of that? Or if you read a story about a woman and an escaped prisoner breaks into her house and holds her hostage, I'll think, well, what would I do if I were in that situation? So I think in an odd way it made me become a mystery writer because I'm always putting myself in the shoes of these different people. I'm wondering what I would do. Oh, that I had no idea about that. I would be cowering, cowering, because as all of you listening know, I am a chicken. This is true. This is known. But over the course of writing these books, sort of discovered a strange bravery within yourself, or um, has it equipped you in some way? Well, I feel like other... it has equipped me in some ways. Also, I, I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I feel like that has helped take out some of my fear of physical confrontation and that I might be able to do something before they killed me, but <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like I could do something. I, I think that's interesting thinking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, capoeira, I think it's called. Capoeira is a different kind oh, a different of martial kind. art. Okay, mm -hmm. different kind jiu jitsu of is just like wrestling with choking. <laughs> Res wrestling with choking, okay. Uh, but thinking about your depictions of young women and that particularly vulnerable time of life, but also thinking about the particular expectations of young women that we, as a society, put mm -hmm. on them of being nice, gentle, submissive, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty easy mm -hmm. to handle, but then put in these moments of extremis, let's say, mm -hmm. where they're required to right. subvert all that. What is the attraction to you in mining that sort of theme? I think um, it's going back to the idea of, of could you do that? If that were you, could you change? Could you rise to that occasion? Could you figure out the clever way. And in my mind, there is always a clever way. Like I took a class a few years ago where we learned 
it was basically an anti-kidnapping class. We mm -hmm. learned how to get out of duct tape and rope and zip ties and how to pick your way out of handcuffs and locks. And it made it now that if I ever see a movie where some girl's in a basement and she's been handcuffed to a rusty old pipe and I think, well, you know what? There's something she could do. Like she's going to, there's probably an underwire in her bra that she could use to pick her way out of those handcuffs or she could use her belt buckle or she could break her glasses and use the metal piece. I just think now that I wouldn't just be like, oh, this is too bad. Now I'm going to die. I would try. I would try and do something. I think for the show notes, we're going to have to ask you to for a couple links on research so that okay. we can put them in the show <laughs> notes if people can do that. But it's an interesting sort of balance between power and powerlessness that mm -hmm. you have been exploring in all of these books, mm -hmm. and particularly in a time when teen girls are expected to have these specific gendered expectations. What is fascinating to me about Two Truths and a Lie is the additional performative element of mm -hmm. Nell wanting to be an actor, and that's a different type of treading that power versus powerlessness and the sense of does she have the ability to inhabit those roles. And in the beginning of the book, she doesn't feel that she has it and she feels like she's much better backstage or running the lights or doing costume changes, uh, making scenery that her, even though she wants to be an actor, she feels like that's not her role, that, that she's not any good at it. And then over the course of the book, she comes to realize that she does have skills. What was that additional sort of thing of thinking about performance, the performance element, particularly teens who are at that age feeling their way into their adulthood and who that, I mean, I know we talk a lot about authenticity and realness, but, you know, a little bit more putting on those adult clothes, so for, to speak. For me, it was like I had been, I'd been wanting to do this story about people stranded in a hotel. And so I actually asked on Facebook, what do, what do high school teams travel for? You know, like I was thinking, could it be a sport, basketball, a mm -hmm. cheerleader competition? But then someone said that people travel to do theater events. And I thought, oh, that's perfect because you add in another layer of people who are trained liars. And I wanted that in there. So mm -hmm. once they said that, I knew immediately, oh, that's what it's going to be. And then I looked, there's actually a documentary that was made uh, probably 2010 um, of a theatrical competition in Florida where um, and I paid $50 to get one of the very rare DVDs of this and then I tracked down uh, some of the actors who were in it and one of them was very helpful to me and helped me understand what it was like to be a teen. I had acted some in high school but mm -hmm. she was she still is an actor in Italy so she gave me all these feelings and emotions that you mm -hmm. have that are very strong when you're in high school you know we don't as adults probably our emotions are not as deeply felt as they are when you're feeling them for the first time I think that really is and sorry kids you know my soapbox on this poor April has not heard this soapbox I don't think but thinking about the hallmark of YA we we talk about it as a coming-of-age story mm -hmm. but it's really more a psychological mm -hmm. uh, virginity psychological morality that you're exploring there of you know, working without a net for the first mm -hmm. time and the sense that the consequences are real mm -hmm. this time. Um, looking at Nell, what are some of the consequences that she's grappling with that you found particularly interesting to depict? Um, let's see, I haven't been asked this question before, so I'm going to have to think about it for a second. Oh, you know, it's like she's attracted to this one boy and... And it takes her a while to see maybe the people that you're first initially attracted to are not as good for you as you thought. Mm -hmm. So so there's that sensation. There's the 
feeling of whether you're going to go behind your teacher's back if they just said you absolutely can't do something but you feel you need to do it would you still do it mm -hmm. there's the feeling of are all adults trustworthy which they're not you know? mm -hmm. and so are you going to are you going to trust this person or are you going to think all right do they have a, another agenda going on so those were some of the things that i was playing around with also just being she's on her own mm -hmm. the excitement I remember the excitement of being at a hotel without my parents when I went on a choir trip in high school and just the thrill and the danger and there's all kinds of possibilities that could happen. Oh, yeah, that first <laughs> that first teen trip away from your parents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember that. I just I just really loved your depiction of Nell just working through this of just sort of like she wants to be an actor and that means being seen, but does she really want to be seen? It's the skill of pretending to be somebody that she's not through the role, but mm -hmm. then in her real life pretending, there's like what does she know and what does she do with what she knows, but the sort of moral compromise of like she's kind of not doing things she should be doing, according to the adults in her life, the untrustworthy adults mm -hmm. in her life. I just thought how you negotiated all of that was really cool. And she's named Nell, um, kind of an homage to Nellie Bly, who Ooh. was a pioneering reporter and actually uh, pretended that she was insane and went inside an insane asylum and reported back about how she was treated. I just like that that was such an interesting role model, I guess, even though she's that woman, I guess she acted to pretend that she was mm -hmm. mentally ill, but she wasn't an actress, but that's where her name came from. And then we think about acting and it's really accessing the truth mm -hmm. of what is in the scene and what is the story right. telling. I think you as a writer, you're accessing the truthfulness of the story mm -hmm. as well, um, which takes us back a little bit to a side comment of untrustworthy adults. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do a lot of research, but also thinking about your primary audiences of teens, what do you think about your responsibility to them as a trustworthy storyteller? I didn't say reliable narrator. I just feel that if you read something in a book, I, when I was growing up, almost everything I learned about history or about anything pre-1980 was probably from a book. So mm -hmm. I might wander around for 10 years thinking, that there was a person who was at Auschwitz called the Weisser Engel because I was not sophisticated enough to realize that um, William Goldman had made up a character for it. So I know that you kind of come into it when you're fresh, that you don't have a filter. So I, I guess I like everything that I write about to be possible. It might not be the most likely thing, but it has to be possible. That's what I tell all my sources. It doesn't have to be... I mean, in the most likely scenario, most of these kids would just die on page three, and that they always, they triumph, they think of clever ways, but they have to be ways that would really work. Which brings us around a little bit. You've mentioned some of the things you've done for your research, but you are famous for research. <laughs> Again, speaking of the possible, uh, what are some of the things, okay, first of all, let's talk about some of the things you did for researching this book, and you mentioned the DVD and speaking to the actors. Uh, what are some of the other things? Well, and then we're going to get to some of your other books okay. and the other steps that you have taken in the name of verisimilitude okay. and possibility. <laughs> well, for this book, I started writing it at the beginning of the pandemic. And once I knew I wanted a theater troupe, I started thinking about theatrical hangings. And I had remember reading that people had tried to do theatrical hangings incorrectly, and then people die in front of an audience. So 
I wanted to make sure if there was a theatrical hanging, it would work correctly. And by endless Googling, I found this guy who, um, that's his whole company, fly, they call it flying. So he flies things in the theater from Mary Poppins to a fake hanging to a bullet in a movie to a Dodge Ram Charger over a stadium. It's his job just to suspend things and make them look like a, a different reality is mm -hmm. happening. And he was um, so cool. I talked to him. He showed me with his uh, iPhone charging cord and a bottle of Hershey's chocolate syrup, how to fake a hanging. <laughs> and then back in his shop, his shop did not close down really for COVID. He got a girl that was about, the, a young woman who was about the same size as my girl. And he set up the whole thing for me and took numerous photos and videos mm -hmm. of it and sent them all to me just to be people like what they do usually so they will answer questions that was one of the things I did for that book I probably did less research just because there was I had to pretty much rely more on my computer mm -hmm. than um uh, than I would normally where I would be normally going out and meeting people and asking them questions what are some of the most interesting things that you've done in the name of research that you've just sort of like did that oh I the craziest that. class I ever took was called urban escape and evasion and it's a class for people who are worried about being kidnapped so there's a big chunk of journalists will take it who are working like if you are working um, in Ukraine right now mm -hmm. you would want to have taken this class um, if you are doing going on safari in a country that's poor people might kidnap you for political reasons they might kidnap you thinking that there was a woman who was kidnapped in Somalia because the people who took her were convinced that all Americans were very wealthy mm -hmm. and that her mother could come up with $5 million. So I took this class. We spent um, two days in a hotel room learning how to get out of duct tape and rope and zip ties and handcuffs, uh, how to make fake ID, how to tell if you're being followed, how to hide something in your luggage how to make an improvised weapon. Like one of the assignments is we had to go out from the hotel room for about an hour and we were supposed to come back with improvised weapons that we'd found outside. So um, it was, it really made you think. So the last day you are fake kidnapped out of a Denny's parking lot in downtown LA and no one calls the police. There's guys with ski masks and long guns handcuffing you, putting a hood over your head, duct tape over your mouth. They shove you into a van. Um, I don't usually tell the kids this. You're stun gunned a bunch. Oh. It's not a taser. It's just those ones you can mm -hmm. get that cost like $20. They hurt, though. And then they stop at some point, and they say, we're going to take a smoke break. And when we come back, you're going to be really sorry. And they've been telling you the whole time that you're going to die. So they leave, and you have about 12 minutes to get pick your out of your handcuffs, get your duct tape off, get your hood off. You have a little route you need to go um, in L.A., and there's different things you need to do along the route, like find a place where you could sleep safely, find a place where you could hide during the day, find a place where you could eat, and take pictures of all those things to prove it. And there's 10 hunters that have a photo of what you were wearing when you went into the van, and they're looking for you, and they know the exact route you're going to be on, and you have to figure out how to walk past them without them noticing you. And we, they partner you up because you do have to ask, get people to give you rides. There's no way to do mm -hmm. it without that. So I think the theory is that the sewer killer won't kill both of you or something. But um, so I took it with another writer, but it was actually super frightening when we were doing it. I was just sweating buckets the whole time. If you think people are looking for you, like someone talking on a cell phone who casually glances at you, you end up staring at them thinking, oh my God, it's one of them. And they stare at you because like, why is that lady staring at me? And then you're like, yes, it's definitely one of the hunters. Oh. But 
we were not caught. It was, but it was very, very scary. It's only fun later when you think about it, but when you're doing it, it's frightening. Well, uh, we are in a hotel room that uh, there's a Denny sign right outside, uh -huh. and I was thinking about going to get the home run breakfast tomorrow, and I will not. Be well, I don't think you'll be kidnapped out of that parking lot. But this is interesting to think about, you know, documenting all these sorts of uh, ideas about risk and then overcoming risk. Do you ever feel risk as a writer in writing these stories? Um, you know, you could choose to take risks, I guess. I mean, like right now, I feel like almost anyone that has a gay character is kind of at risk. I watch all these, these uh, books being pulled mm -hmm. off shelves just because a character is gay. I mean, you could choose... Whether you're going to have swears or it's more, I think, is more worrying about the adults than, mm. than the teens. Uh, for me, the risk might be more like, can I get away with having a narrator where you think the person is one sex, but they're a different sex? Can I carry that off without the reader figuring it out, you know, mm -hmm. way too soon? Or can you, can you tell something in a different way? Can you tell it in super short chapters? Can you have a variety of voices but not have it be confusing so those are more the risks that I might mm. take you've written and we've we have not mentioned all the titles that you have written there are many and they are toothsome people <laughs> toothsome get into it what have you learned from your readers over the years or have you because I know you do a huge number of school visits mm -hmm. and I uh, I've heard from people who talk about the quality of your school visits I like school really visits. jazzing them up but have you learned something from your primary readers over oh. the years well, kids are, uh, sometimes they're super, like, I remember I was at a high school in Texas and I was talking to this young man and he was, I think, a junior and he looked like an adult. So I was kind of mm -hmm. talking to him like he was an adult. And then he looked at me with these really wide eyes and he said, did you come here in a helicopter? And I'm like, oh, you know, they look adult, but sometimes they're not adult. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of kids out there have gone through something awful, mm -hmm. something awful. Mm -hmm. And they'll come up and tell you about it. And it's very hard to know, like I remember this one kid was like, uh, I used to live with my mom, but she abused me. And then I moved in with my grandma and she abused me. Now I live with my great grandma. And since I found hip hop, I don't cut myself as much. And it's really hard to know what to say to back say to that. that. I, I said, I'm glad, you know, that you like hip hop. And I try and be really positive, but it makes me realize there are kids out there with like nothing and to expect them to be able to function without a lot of help. I've also noticed that a single teacher or a single librarian, a single caring adult in someone's life can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always, I'm always trying to remind them because I've seen that a single adult can make a big difference in a kid's life who doesn't have anybody at home for them to do that. I have to say, just having been with you at a signing for the first time, what was exciting and interesting to me is uh, you met a lot of strangers today. I almost said strange people. Sorry. <laughs> but one of them might have been strange. I mean, she met me today. and uh, But you took a moment to have a personal connection wherever possible with each of these people. And that's sort of the secret of your books, isn't it? There, you know, there's a lot of research and a lot of technical stuff with it. Mm -hmm. but it really is about those interpersonal elements, those emotions. Those are important to me. And I also like, after writing for adults, adults look the same when you're talking to them, whether they like you or they hate you. They look mildly interested and they clap politely. Kids, when you're speaking to them, if they don't care, they, they show it. They will mm -hmm. start braiding each other's hair and talking in normal tones and kicking somebody's chair and they just and I always make it a point when I'm doing a school visit 
I'm going to get those kids. I'm going to get them to listen. I'm going to make them mm-hmm. interested in this. And I feel like I can get reluctant readers. I can get the kids who haven't picked up a book willingly since like second grade. I can get them to read. Maybe not anybody else's books, but I can read my books. Well, you know, that's all that counts. Well, it's a gateway drug. (laughs) It's a gateway. Um, But I find that interesting because, you know, it is, I think, that very honest personal connection in the books that comes through that really eventually captivates Mm -hmm. those kids and and keeps them drawn Mm -hmm. in. There's a lot of thrillers out there, but I don't think there's a lot of them that have that emotional immediacy that you have in your books. Yeah. And I think having watched you now to signing, I was like, that is very genuine, which is particularly interesting when we are talking about a book called Two Truths and a Lie, and we are trying to figure out truthfulness. Uh, April, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a delight. It was great. Now, gentle listeners out there in the virtual universe, Two Truths and a Lie should be on your shelves beginning in May of 2022. You can go to the library to read this book, which you should do, but you can also go to your local independent bookseller. Now, to encourage you to enjoy this book, we are pleased to leave you with a small excerpt from the audiobook of Two Truths and a Lie, written by the master of mystery, thriller, chiller, killer, from Little Brown Books for Young Readers and Christy Ottaviano Books, April Henry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, guys, get ready for that sample, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Shotgun, I shout as Mrs. McElroy pulls up to the curb. Through some mysterious magic known only to her, Mrs. McElroy has been able to wheedle use of a school district vehicle this weekend. Normally only the athletic teams, we theater kids lump them together as sports ball, get that kind of support. So we'll be traveling to the theater competition at the state capitol in style. That is, if your idea of style is a tan minivan. No fair, Mom, Raven pouts. The nickname got started last fall after I brought in treats to help make the week prior to opening night, better known as Hell Week, more bearable. Hey, the adults always sit in the front seat, Adam says, opening the back gate. All five of us try to jam our suitcases into the small luggage space until he takes charge. As Adam fits all the suitcases together like puzzle pieces, something soft and cold dots the tip of my nose. I look up. Flakes are falling from the concrete gray sky. With a grin, my best friend Min tips her head back and sticks out her tongue to catch one. Maybe I look anxious, because Adam says, Don't worry, Nell, as he slots a backpack into a gap. It won't stick. The forecast says just a few flurries. We haven't gotten much snow this winter, at least by Midwest standards. My family moved here from Los Angeles a little over a year ago, so the snow is still sort of a novelty. I had imagined pristine drifts, snowmen, and snowball fights. The reality has been a lot less picturesque. In the corner of the parking lot, just like all parking lots around here, there's a head-high, dingy gray pile. With each passing week, it gets a little dirtier and a little smaller. Now it's spring, at least on paper. Beep, beep. Mrs. McElroy honks the horn to hurry us up. Adam slides open the side door and then scrambles in, contorting his long legs to sit in the far corner. Everyone else follows. I pull the door shut and then take my seat in the front. 
Min starts immediately playing the Hamilton soundtrack on her phone. While she has by far the best singing voice, we all sing along at full volume and with dramatic gestures. Everyone's excited about competing, and even about the trip to the capital. To them, it's a big city. The nearest actual big city is Chicago, and that's the better part of a day's drive away. As Mrs. McElroy pulls out of the parking lot, we ignore the stares from the kids waiting for their parents or the bus. Or maybe we don't. All of us love an audience. It's kind of a given if you're an actor. I'm not sure one minivan can contain all this energy, Mrs. McElroy says in a pause between songs, but she's grinning when she says it. We all live, sleep, and breathe theater. For many of us, theater is our truest family, sometimes our only family. Theater is the place where being weird is embraced, not shunned. We know what we're like when we're stripped of everything, both literally and figuratively, and yet, we still love one another. Six hours later, it's become clear that the forecast was wrong. As the hours have passed and the snow kept falling, the minivan has gotten quiet. The weather app said something about the polar vortex shifting unexpectedly. And then we lost service. By that time, we were surrounded by acres of flat farmland, halfway between home and the capital, and with no good choices but we had already come so far. And the snow wasn't falling that hard. We decided to continue, which was clearly a mistake. For the millionth time, I checked my phone. No service. Knowing theoretically that some areas don't have cell service is way different than experiencing it yourself. We're already over six hours into what was supposed to be a four-hour drive and still have at least 100 miles to go. Mrs. McElroy is holding the steering wheel so tightly that her gnarled fingers are nearly as white as the world outside the windows. White, dancing flakes falling through the darkness. White, snow-covered, empty fields stretching endlessly on either side of us. The headlights barely illuminate the faint black ruts in the white that are the only sign we're still on the highway. A half hour ago, the semi we'd followed for miles turned off. Now we're all alone, a tiny boat in the middle of a vast ocean.